You're listening to Skip Intro with me, Krista Smith. Welcome to Skip Intro Emmy Edition. The Emmy nominations for the Emmy Award Show, which will take place in September, came out this morning. This is a special episode where I am talking about all the amazing Emmy nominees that Netflix got. And a lot of the talent has come through the Skip Intro studio to talk with me about many things, most of all their projects. So let's just take it at the top here. All right. So Stranger Things, people, Duffer Brothers. Oh, okay. So you know that I became obsessed with these twins. And as they told me, they are identical twins, Ross and Matt Duffer. It was so cool to be able to talk with them and get that time in their studio and downtime between editing the final two episodes that they were doing, which is where kind of right where I caught them. I always am obsessed with talking to siblings about how they work together, the pros and the cons of being related. And I think that it speaks for itself how great the season was. I know my kids loved it. And I obviously got taken up in in the wave of Stranger Things. And to put a number on it, last week, Stranger Things crossed the one billion hours watched mark, which is kind of incredible. One billion hours spent watching Stranger Things season four. That's pretty incredible. It also was the biggest premiere weekend ever for an English language television show on Netflix. And that first weekend alone, it had almost 300 million hours viewed. So congratulations. What I loved about any any creator, but especially siblings, is that they were at this from the very beginning, whether they were doing shows with their stuffed animals, creating little movies in their backyard, and how much they absorbed cinema and television as kids that then later translated into what we're seeing on screen in Stranger Things. You know, their obsession with the 80s, obsession with the horror movies, and how that was just gesticulated inside of them and came out in this just spectacular, totally original series. But yet it it hits us Gen Xers right to the core with these great references uh, of the 80s and the stuff that we grew up on. So I am so excited to see what these two do next. And I'm thrilled that uh, we're going to see some offshoots of Stranger Things and they're going to continue to work with Netflix. And I really feel like pretty blessed to have a front row seat into these two brothers because I think that they are such a unique, spectacular talent. Let's hear from one of those brothers. I've got Ross Duffer for you here now. Our parents got us uh, a video camera. I think it was in the fourth grade as a Christmas present. And, uh, and we started making little movies then. Obviously, they're a little rough around the edges, but um, we fell in love with it and we just kept kept doing it and never never really stopped. And even prior to that fourth grade video camera, we would get take out our toys. This is when we were really young. We, we loved action figures and we would set a timer for two hours because we knew that was the length of the movie. And we would imp- sort of improv um, this story together with our with our action figures. And I just think that um you know so from when we were very young to now we were telling stories together and i think you know of course we're we don't agree on everything but generally we see eye to eye and the twin factor does help in that we can share a look and we know what the other one's thinking and again 99 percent of the time we're we're on this we're on the same page 
It is Ozark's world, and we are just living in it. I was so sad to watch the last episode of season four of Ozark, knowing it was the finale of this incredible series. I have been with the Bird Clan since Jump, since the very first episode, season one. And it has been an incredible ride, so complex, so many twists and turns, but so many memorable characters. And uh, like I've said before, I'll say it a hundred times, that last half of the season was absolutely perfect. That ending was so deeply satisfying. I am thrilled to see it get acknowledged for the brilliant work that it is. I mean, it just the, the writing on the show, the directing, the acting, it is all everyone is firing um, and giving their best. So let's just give them a shout out. They got 13 total nominations, okay, including Outstanding Directing for a Drama Series, Go Jason Bateman. As we know, he really cut his teeth as a director, and he's gotten um, several accolades for it, and I, and I would say he deserves every single one of them. Also, lead actor, Jason Bateman, lead actress. I mean, Wendy Bird, did Laura Linney, is there a finer actress working out there today? I'm not sure. She got a, a nod, as did Julia Garner, our beloved Ruth, for an outstanding supporting actress. And one that really came out of nowhere, Tom Pelfrey, for a guest actor. And I will say, I think it's retribution for him not getting it for season three, where he was fantastic. And I would have thought he would have gotten the nod then. But I love that he got a nod in season four. And I and earlier on the show, I, you know, I had Chris Mundy in the studio along with with Jason Bateman talking about, you know, bringing that character back, right? Bringing Ben back to kind of give the audience closure on that character and how he actually died. And obviously, Tom Pelfrey, a fantastic actor, he really made an impression. I'm just thrilled for him that that he got this Emmy nom. I remember talking to Tom Pelfrey, and he had such a great story about arriving on his his first day arriving uh, for season three on Ozark. But as opposed to me retelling it, I'm going to let him tell it because, after all, he is a much better storyteller. So here's Tom Pelfrey. It was either my first day or my second day. I was running out of the birdhouse um, completely naked whooping as I ran towards the lake. <laughs> and it was like, you know, my first scene was just an easy scene in the patio, but it was with Laura and Janet and Jason was directing. And it was like, okay, this is basically, you know, I mean, this is my first day at work and I'm with the three, you know, sort of <laughs> three of the leads of the show. And, but it was so great because they were all so cool and it was laid back. I was like, wow, is this really how this job is going to be? And then the next day, yeah, I'm I'm running naked out of the house, whooping. And <laughs> I was like, after these two days, I feel I feel like we've broken the ice. Like <laughs> I can be comfortable here. <laughs> What I love about this, any show, is when a star is born in a show. We all know Jason Bateman's great. Laura Linney, like I said, one of the greatest actresses working today. But the real discovery here was Julia Garner as Ruth Langmore. And it was a part she never thought she'd get, actually. I mean, she, like every other actress in America, goes in, gets the call, goes into a tiny little casting office in New York City, and she's sitting there. I mean, this is the the trauma of, of being an actor. You've really got to be able to take rejection and understand the competition. Competition, and oftentimes it has nothing to do with you. So she's sitting there outside listening to everybody audition and, and waiting for her name to be called. And she had already made the commitment to do the Missouri 
accent. And she had worked on it and she developed it. And and she was like, all right, I'm going to go in as Ruth with the accent. But you sit there and over time, you know, your confidence can chip away because you hear actress after actress. You hear them auditioning because it's only behind a closed door. Uh, They're not soundproof and no one has an accent. So thinking that, oh, my God, I do I commit to the accent? Do I not commit to the accent? But she committed to the accent. And despite thinking, obviously, when she walked out of the audition room that it hadn't gone well, within a week, she got the call that she had the part. So let's listen to Julia Garner talk about how Ozark has changed her life. Ruth does feel like a part of me. It's changed my life professionally, but it's also changed my life personally. She gave me the sense of confidence that I've never had, that I've always struggled with my whole life. And I think there's something really beautiful about that, putting yourself completely out there in a way. So I'm very um, grateful that I played her, not only because it was an amazing part, but because I, I got something that you don't get every day which is a sense of true confidence, not this facade in a way. I'm so thrilled to see that Chris Mundy got a a writing nom for this series because in talking with him and Jason, they both discussed the back and forth about how to end the show and everyone had varying feelings. And Chris Mundy, when he knew that he was going to have to kill Ruth, he he was like sleepless nights. He didn't sleep, he said, for for several weeks about this stuff. So I'm glad to know that uh, that all paid off because I do think that the writing on the show is a masterclass in show running. Let's hear from Chris and Jason now. When the decision on the finale came, we talked about that in the room for a week or more. And then I was like, we can't talk about this again. I just need to think. And I didn't sleep. And this sounds like one of those things you say. It's really not. Like I barely slept for two weeks. I would wake up at like 3.34 in the morning. This feeling of like, you're supposed to take care of these people and you're not. It was really, 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 really hard. I think it was right, but it was, but it was, it was hard. So we, we all, we all talked about it a, a lot. And one of the things I think Chris and I are most proud of, and I know I speak from because we've talked about this a bunch, um, you know, our ability to share duties and delegate and trust and compromise. And it's just a really, really difficult thing to do you everybody can talk about it but when you get right down to it it you know there are a thousand opportunities to disagree and it's a choice to agree it's a choice to find compromise i hate the idea of going forward into my career thinking how how can how can i ever have a a a relationship a creative relationship with this much synergy again you know and, and this much harmony it's it It'll, it'll be it'll be difficult. It'll, it's going to be a letdown. And one of my favorite things about Ozark is the women. I mean, I don't remember ever watching a show this complex, this messy, and this exciting, and <laughs> just the twist and turns. And it's all it's all female led. Yes, of course, there's Marty Bird. Yes, of course, there's Navarro. There's all these male characters, but the 
but the narrative is really driven by the women, and none of these women are necessarily likable on the surface. We root for them, and it wavers who we're rooting for at, at what time. But I think that it has done such an outstanding job and really highlighting the complexities of the female condition and putting it up there on screen to see that, yes, we can be all of these things all at once. And I, I just feel that not enough people have talked about that. I mean, I know people love the individual characters, but I think you really have to take a step back and look at what Ozark did for actresses. It's just incredible. There's just so much for them to sink their teeth into. And, and the fact that they drive the narrative is really what makes this show special. And let's hear from none other than Wendy Bird, Laura Linney. I have moments where I think, oh God, not not many other actresses are able to swim around and, and stuff like this. And I think it's a combination of just a great showrunner, Chris Mundy and his great writer's room. And, and you know, the, the realization that, that female characters can be really interesting and have a lot to contribute. And having a, a you know, a, a lead actor in Jason Bateman who, who has encouraged it and been supportive of sharing a show with an ensemble of people. Um, you know, it's, it's, I'm just lucky that it came to me when it did. This is so exciting for Margaret Qualley because I feel like this role in Maid really is her first fully defining starring role where you really get to see what she can do as an actress. Of course, I fell in love with her. Uh, she was great in The Leftover. She was great in, I mean, please, with The Pickle Jar and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She was fantastic in that film. She's always good, but this really, I mean, just seeing her in every single one of these scenes, just holding her own. As you know, the show was inspired by Stephanie Land's memoir, Made Hard Work, Low Pay, and A Mother's Will to Survive. Also, interestingly enough, Margot Robbie was a executive producer on the series, and it was extremely popular. Popular. I think it was viewed almost 500 million hours in its first month. And Margaret plays Alex and her mother, actually, Annie McDowell, played her mother in the show, which is kind of an interesting fun fact because it's the first time that the two appeared together in a production. Let's hear from Margaret about what it meant to her working on Made. The crazy thing is just that despite the fact that Stephanie Land went through all of this and is you know, had so many obstacles put her her way. She's still incredibly lucky, you know, <laughs> like, because a lot of people don't survive it and don't get through it. And I think that it's, you know, had Stephanie been a person of color, the chances of her ending up in the place where she is today are incredibly slim just because it would have been one more hoop to jump through or one more door shut in her face. It's been so rewarding to be a part of something that it seemed like actually made some kind of difference in people's lives. That's like crazy for me and and really powerful. So I feel very lucky. All right. Let's go back to Corsicana, Texas, fruitcake capital of the world with cheer. We are at Navarro Junior College. We are back. It was a very difficult season. They had to address some some really sad issues at the top of this show. I am just really proud of this crew that it got a uh, three nominations, outstanding directing for a reality program, outstanding editing, and outstanding unstructured reality program. And none of it would have happened without Coach Monica. 
in season two, the filmmakers began following the cheerleaders and coaches from Trinity Valley Community College, otherwise known as TVCC, a competitive school uh, down the road in Athens, Texas. So the schools are pitted against each other as rivals, and not just because of their geographical proximity, but because of their near equal abilities. While there was plenty of drama between the schools, the real impact of season two for me was watching the effect that that instant fame had on this group of young people who had never been in the spotlight before. And suddenly, not only are they thrust into the spotlight, but it is the most popular show. They're everywhere. They're blowing up on social media. And that was fascinating to me. And I love the fact that the directors really dove into that aspect of the success of the first season. The way they carried it over into the second season, I thought was just so smart. And not only do we get to watch these athletes at Navarro navigate this newfound space, we also see how they have to still deal with this intense pressure of competition and expectation. But for me, it all goes back to Coach Monica. So let's hear what she has to say. They're true athletes. The athleticism is just top notch, but their grit, their determination, their passion is just on another level. And they work harder than, you know, anybody I know. They don't you know, if, if we say, you know what, we need an extra practice because something's not looking quite right. Nobody complains. They show up, they do the work, and they know that we all have a common goal. It, mm-hmm. It's it's great, I think, too, in the documentary. You know, like you said earlier, you know, it was like, I mean, nobody changed. These kids, the girls, they didn't put on makeup. They didn't fix their hair. You saw their hair was, you know, hanging down in their face. Mm-hmm. They had no makeup on. They didn't pretend to be anybody that they weren't. And I think that was another thing that made it so special. Inventing Anna got a total of three Emmy nominations. This is a, obviously a Shonda Land series. It had her telltale trademarks in it. It was just so much fun. It got an Emmy for a limited series and also for our lead actress, the girl of the hour, Julia Garner. And as with all things Julia Garner, nothing is traditional about this actress, which is why I love her. She's just so incredibly talented. I feel like this is these two parts of Ruth Langmar and Anna Delvey. It's only beginning to scratch the surface of what we're going to see from her as she continues with her career. I love that she just basically sat down with Shonda Rhimes and her audition consisted of a conversation. And what she talked about for her, one of the greatest experiences was being able to get to see firsthand and experience the writing from Shonda Land and Shonda Rhimes specifically, like that experience for an actress, she said, was once in a lifetime. Um, And she did get to meet the real Anna Sorkin at uh, the correctional facility in order to prepare for the role. So there's always that pressure, you know, to when you're when you're an actor and you're actually playing someone, a real life person, and they are still alive, you, you, you know, somewhere in the back of your mind, you're always thinking about that. And what makes this uh, so interesting, which I don't think people really know, is that I'm so happy she got nominated for Ozark and nominated for Inventing Anna because these were two shows that she shot, that she filmed simultaneously. So she was flying back and forth between the two sets and between the two uh, accents, the one obviously for Anna Delvey and the one obviously for, for Ruth Langmore for almost a year and a half, uh, doing these at the same time. And, uh, What Won't Kill You Makes You Stronger. So I am just thrilled for her that she got uh, nominations for both of these performances. Here's Julia talking about the real-life stresses of playing 
a living person. It always stresses, I feel like an actor out when you're playing a real person, especially when they're alive and, and hoping that they'll like the performance. I mean, one of the things that when I met her, you know, she asked me how, how's shooting going and what I'm hoping for the project. And I just told her because at this time, like nobody knew how she sounded like she didn't have any interviews and she was just kind of like a page six poster child in, in a way. I just told her, I was like, listen, like, I just want people to, they don't have to love you. They can think whatever they want to think, but I want people to be willing to understand why you did certain behaviors in a way. I said, I, I just don't want you to be a character anymore rather than a person. And you don't have to love the person, but you have to be willing to understand why they did what they did. Not that David Letterman needs any more accolations, but I will just say one of my favorite shows is My Next Guest Needs No Introduction with David Letterman. So I'm thrilled that he got a a nomination for Outstanding Hosted Nonfiction Series. He is the gold standard in in interviewing. I I love. I watched him always. His show, late the Late Show with David Letterman. Every version of his late night career I watched, and it was a thrill when I got to talk to him about his career. And one of the things that was so great about it is he, want he he was in L.A. and he wanted to do the interview in Cantor's Deli, which for those of you that are not familiar with Cantor's, it's. Uh, a place that's been open for 24 hours for decades. It's on Fairfax and it's a deli where you get your, you know, pastrami and rye and a dish of pickles thrown on the table as, as soon as you sit down. And he was reminiscing, which is about the times when he was a struggling stand up. And after every show, they'd come to Cantor's and just kind of talk about their lives and how miserable they were and, (laughs) you know, what they're, you know, how they did with their shows and what they wanted to improve. So I thought there was something very touching about sitting there with David Letterman, taking him all the way back to the beginning of his career and just to see how incredibly successful he's been. Let's hear from Mr. Letterman. Those of us who were of that era, 1975, early 80s and such at the Comedy Store, uh, always thought of it as like uh, Paris before the war. Uh, full of romance, full of camaraderie, uh, full of great uh, creativity, uh, and, and 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 fighting the good fight, and we were, you know, the resistance, and we knew, and there were only a couple hundred comics in the country, so we were, we were really the chosen few in those days, and uh, we look back on it, and you, you talk to anybody from that period, and they'll give you the same same version of that, maybe not as sappy romantic is my version of it, but that's how I felt about it. It was looking back on it. You go there every night and you'd see people that really made you laugh and then you could come here and they would continue to make you laugh and it was delightful. Uh, and so I look at that as being the the really high time for the art. Uh, and now I realize that I'm wrong, that in fact the high time for the art is now and, and the comedy store, while, while it was... Uh, um, a small enclave of uh, men and women who had the same dream is turned into a factory. It's big stars in comedy who who get specials on Netflix. They get three or four deal, uh, three or four shows a deal. They they play in stadiums all around the country, and they're enormous stars. And that that just didn't happen when we were there. Mm-hmm. And and people have 
uh, disavowed me of my romantic version of <laughs> our time there as being the the best time to be there. They say, no, absolutely not. Now is the time to be there because it's it's huge. It's really gotten huge. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate each and every one of you. And I hope you get a chance to check out these shows if you haven't already. And stay tuned. I've got a very special guest coming on next week in a surprise bonus episode. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Krista Smith, your host and creator of the show. Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to our coordinator, Alyssa Hillman. Please subscribe, rate, and review Skip Intro wherever you've been listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to NetflixQ.com for more. That's NetflixQueUE.com. 